Well, thank you uh, to the band for leading us this morning and for your singing. And uh, it's very good to see you all here this morning. No handshakes, no smiles, no bulletin, and no assistance to your seat at one minute to eleven. No, our church gatherings just wouldn't be the same without ushers. Those servant stewards who, Sunday by Sunday, week by week, welcome us, direct us, and generally organize us as we come in here as a large crowd into this building. And their job is so important that if for some reason there were no stewards in the church, then no doubt it would be a small degree of chaos. And so we don't often say it, but we are thankful to you who do that task. But I'd like you to use your imagination this morning and picture an even worse scenario than if we were to have no stewards, no ushers in the church. And I should tell you, it is a sad scenario. It is a sickening scenario. And God forbid it should ever happen in this church. The scenario is this. To have ushers and stewards who perform their task with partiality. So, for example, if you were wealthy, you might be given a preferred seat. And if you were poor or had some other characteristic that was undesirable, you'd be directed to a nice seat on the floor. Well, thankfully, it's hard to imagine such a scenario in Charlotte Chapel. But in actual fact, that very situation actually happened in the early church. In this letter, which we've been studying over recent weeks under the title, Living by Faith, the author named James describes a situation in which people's affluence or influence leads to them being treated especially well. And James warns, even us, that such discrimination on the basis of affluence or influence is deadly and dangerous. Hence our sermon titled this morning, Dangerous Discrimination. So let's open our Bibles once again to that text in James chapter 2. We're looking at the second chapter of James and verses 1 to 13, which Mike read for us earlier. And before we study further, let's pray. Our Father, we ask now, as we ponder these verses, that you will bring illumination to our minds, deep and appropriate affections to our hearts, and supremely that you will make our wills responsive to your truth. May we not be only hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come to this text, I'd like us to notice, first of all, that it is this matter 
discrimination, which sits at the top of James' agenda. As you look to this section, as in so many passages in James, it may seem like just a rag bag of different concepts. And yet, as you look closely, as you scrutinize it, you begin to see that there is a basic thrust, there is a central concern that dominates these 13 verses. I was reminded in studying this of times when my mother used to send me out to school because if there was something very important that she wanted to lodge in my brain, she used the power of repetition. And it was somewhat remarkable how in one speech paragraph she could say the same thing in five different ways. Well, here is James, and he's doing the very same thing on four occasions. He reiterates the big idea. So, look at them with me. Verse 1. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. And just in case we're still not registering with James, he puts it yet another way in verse 13. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And the drumbeat that he is beating again and again and again is a three-part time, don't show favoritism. That is the seed that he is throwing here and there and there and here throughout this section. Don't discriminate in your church. Now, I suppose at this point, James could have uh, moved on to his next topic. Uh, He's pretty much made the point plain. And yet, in fact, as we see, James takes a whole 13 verses on this theme. And I think it's probably because James would have been a very good preacher. Uh, He understands that principles alone uh, might not work for some people. And so what he does next is he gives an illustration, a a picture of the kind of thing he's talking about in action. In verses 2 and 3. So there are these two men who pitch up at church on a Sunday morning. And probably the only thing they have in common is the fact that they don't regularly come to church. At least we might infer that from the fact that as they turn up to this small house church, they really don't know what to do, they don't know where to sit, they don't know where to go. But that is the only thing they have in common. Because the first man is a rich man. And you don't need to be Columbo to figure this out. James says he is literally gold-fingered. He has a a jewel on every joint. He has a nugget on every knuckle, as many rich men did in these days. And he is also wearing some immaculate clothing, literally shining apparel. He's wearing a Gucci suit or something like that. And so when he enters the meeting, what happens next? Well, the usher greets him and immediately takes him to the best seat in the house. Now, I guess this wouldn't be the front row in Charlotte Chapel. No one wants to sit there. So I don't know where the seat is exactly. But it's a, it's a good seat. It's a preferential seat. Now, the problem is not 
that he gives the man a good seat necessarily. If the story stopped there, that would be well and good. I mean, we should make efforts with those who come in and who are out with the family of Christ. No, the problem arises when he returns to the door just in time for another man to come in. And what a different character. A poor man. Not gold-fingered. Not well-dressed. But in shabby and dirty clothes. And how this plays out, how this man is treated, is very different. He doesn't get a good seat in the church. In fact, he doesn't even get a seat. Oh, he has choices. Two choices. Number one, he can either sit on the floor until he's humiliated, or he can stand till his legs hurt. Now, James says that this very vividly illustrates what he is talking about. Favoritism. Favoritism, this word, which literally means to receive someone's face. Sounds like a strange wording, but it means to accept someone on the basis of their appearance, what they look like. Judgments that are made on superficial and external criteria. And therefore, it might apply to other areas today. Someone's age, as we've been hearing about in the news this week. Someone's physical abilities or lack of. Someone's intellectual capacity. Someone's background. The color of someone's skin or some other factor. Now, let me pause just for a moment here. And ask this question, could this kind of thing happen in Charlotte Chapel? And you might say, well, not this specific scenario. And I think you would be right there. I don't think this would happen specifically. But if I were to ask more generally, could favoritism happen? I was thinking of what might be a little test for this, just to get us thinking uh, when you choose your seat each Sunday, and uh, some of you choose your seat, some of you sit in the same places, but it is an interesting question to ask, isn't it? How often do you sit next to someone who is different from you? In a different economic class. In a different personality class. From a different background. Someone who speaks differently from you. In a different academic class, race class, age class, you fill in the blank. And you know, if you have two options, and some of you have done this, there's two rows that are available. The last two rows in the church. Row A, row B. In row A, there is someone who matches your social profile. Really easy to talk to. And in row B... There is someone very, very different from you. Which row do you choose every time? If you had ten opportunities, which row would you always pick? You see, favoritism, if we think about it, is possible even in the church, even in our own hearts. Now, I don't think this means to say that there's no place for focus in the church. 
And uh, today, for example, is Student Sunday. Does that mean that if you're not a student, you're discriminated against this morning? In fact, as a church, we focus on different groups at different times of the year. We have Sundays where we focus on young people and old people and so on. If you have three children and you celebrate their respective birthdays, are you showing favoritism? When you focus on them, you give them a card, you give them a present. That's not favoritism. That is focus. But here's what favoritism would be if on every day of the year you only ever focused on that child. That would be favoritism. And that is why as a church, Charlotte Chapel should always be a church for students, but not a student church. We're not into target niches in this church. This church is for students, it's for non-academics, it's for young, it's for middle-aged, it's for old, it's for everyone. And I look to my own heart, but I, and I know that I can do better in this area. So, what do we need? What do we need? Because this is a battle of the will. What we need is motivation for this task. It's not hard to grasp what James is saying here. We know what he is expecting. It is hard to apply a truth like this. And therefore, most of the remainder of this text is argument. In fact, James supplies six arguments designed to destroy discrimination at the root. Six motivators to compel us. So, let's note them together fairly briefly on each. And maybe you could write these down on a bit of paper or take a mental note. And why not review these some Sundays before you come in the doors of the church? Here are six reasons why I must resist favoritism today in where I sit, in who I speak to in the lounge or don't speak to, and so on. Number one, an appeal to faith. My brothers, verse one, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, James could have simply said, don't show favoritism till so. There must be something significant in what he adds here. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. There is something inherent in our faith in Jesus which foils favoritism. And I think the clue is found in the, the words glorious Lord. James says to the Christian, the one that you trust is the glorious Lord. He is reminding them of the infinite brilliance, the infinite majesty, the infinite kingship of Christ. And yet he is also, you notice, Jesus Christ, referring to his humanity. Jesus of Nazareth, who lived on earth as God's chosen saviour. So when you put the two of those together, the two things, what do you have? The glorious Lord of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth. See, what you, what you get there is a reminder of the incarnation, that Jesus in all his glory came down. 
He left the splendor of heaven to favor you. He did not favor heaven's splendor, but sinners on earth. And so if you believe in that kind of Christ, you cannot show favoritism. And we cannot be conspicuous for Christ and play favorites at the same time. That is what James is saying. Number one. Second appeal, an appeal to motive. If you show special attention, this is verse 3 now, to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? So there's the favoritism bit again. And become judges with evil thoughts. So when we play favorites, one of the ways we sin is in our motives. We usually play favorites because there is something to gain or that we think we will gain by favoring. And God is very clear that partiality for any personal motive is out of bounds. In the Old Testament, for example, in Leviticus 19.15, God spoke to the judges who would make assessments of the people and their cases He said, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So they were to make judgments that were not swayed by a person's bank balance. Whether they are rich and could perhaps grease your palm, or whether they were poor, and so you thought, well, I'll just let them off with it anyway. No, we should always judge fairly. That's what that text Reminds us. And you know, I think this raises, for me anyway, some uncomfortable questions. For example, have you ever heard someone say something like this? Wouldn't it be great if such and such a person, and then they put a name in, wouldn't it be great if they became a Christian? Now just think about what that is saying. We're making a judgment that someone has particular talents, particular connections, particular personality traits or influence that would be especially strategic and helpful for us, for the church. So we say that would be good. But maybe we shouldn't do that. I mean, wouldn't it be great if anyone became a Christian? regardless of their background. If we target certain types of people and we exclude other people because we will benefit more if the first lot become converts, we have evil motives. That's reason number two. The third appeal is an appeal to election. Verse five now. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor In the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Now, James is not using spectacular speech here or metaphorical speech when he says, has not God chosen those who are poor? James is making a very specific point here in relation to his hearers. Because James's readers were predominantly poor. There were some affluent people in the early church. 
as the book of Acts records, but a great percentage of first century Christians were poor. Either they had nothing, or they had come to nothing because of persecution. And therefore, James is making an obvious point. You were poor when God chose you. But now, you are discriminating against the poor. Who are in the very same situation as you were. If God had treated you like that, you wouldn't be here. And you know, this is an interesting phenomenon. That sometimes, we can write off people for the gospel, who are even in the very same situation where we found ourselves before Christ found us. Isn't that very strange? But for some reason we say, you know, they'll never change. That kind of person. So you come from an atheistic background, and yet you think, you know, those hard-nosed atheists, they'll never convert to Christ. You come from a high-flying business background. But you say, those people are too busy for Jesus. You come from a drugs culture, and you know how difficult it is to climb up out of the pit. And so you say, it's hard for people like that to become Christians. And James says, weren't you like that when God chose you? How we should meditate on election And the unconditional nature of God's call, his choosing us, not only while we were still sinners, as Paul says in Romans 5, but as he says in Ephesians 1, he chose us even before the foundation of the world. That's argument three. Fourthly, Paul makes, James makes an appeal to common sense. Now, I really like this appeal because it resonates with my Scottish psyche. And with you, if you love a bargain, because James says uh, you're not getting a good deal at all. You're favoring the rich, but is it not, verse 6, the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now again, this is not spectacular speech here. This was happening in these days. The rich were just a small percentage of the population, but they owned just about everything. And so they could pretty much do whatever they liked when they liked. Be as unreasonable as they wanted with the poor. And so on a whim, they could literally collar you, that's what they did in those days, in the street, and drag you by the back of the neck to the courthouse. And when you got there, if you were poor, you had little chance of winning your case, Because the rich guy had slipped an envelope, probably, into the judge's hand. And so the Christians, so despised, were a particular target for rich, bitter people. And why, says James, out of all people, are you favoring the rich? That same guy that you give the preferential seat to might be taking you to court next week. And you know, again, this is something to think about in application, isn't it? If we are intent on playing favorites. Because in the end, we might be favoring someone who will bring us good grief, not good. 
so that that person you curry favor with may end up attaching certain strings to your relationship. And so you're always trying to keep them sweet and it becomes something of a slavery. See, often favoritism is just plain folly, even by the world's standards. Fifth, an appeal to law. Verse 8, James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture. Now, James is upping the ante now as he comes to his climax. He's being ironic, you notice here. They are breaking the law. If you really keep the royal law, they're not keeping it. So the question is here, what is the law? What law is James referring to? Well, we can't go into this in enormous detail, but there are a couple of clues in the text. You notice, firstly, that it is the royal law. It's royal. It has a a regal, kingly quality to it. You notice also the content of it. James says, the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 10, originally. But you also remember that Jesus quoted this text in his summary of the law. Matthew 22:36. Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus there is quoting from Leviticus 19. Richard was reminding us how Jesus built on that with his disciples as of most importance. So in John 13:34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, as you bring those different clusters of thought together, it seems most likely then that the royal law refers to the new commandment given by Jesus. That would certainly make sense of the kingly aspect. The the law is royal because the king gives the law. This is Jesus' command. Now, think about this. What is James saying? Simply that favoritism breaks Jesus' command. Therefore, it is sin. Therefore, it is breaking his law. And by the way, if you think, says James, well, okay, we're not so good at this favoritism thing. We're always breaking that law. But, you know, we don't steal. We don't murder. We don't commit adultery. James says, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point breaks all of it. It only takes one leak in the boat to sink the boat. It only takes one stone thrown at one part of the glass to shatter the whole glass. And you know, this is serious, therefore, because the believer is breaking the law of Christ when he plays favorites. It's not that the believer must obey the law of Christ in order to be saved. We are rescued by Christ through faith and not through our works. 
But as followers of Christ, listen to this, our obedience is an expression of our love to Christ. Our obedience is an expression of our love to him. So, in John 15, 12, Jesus says, My command, notice again, it's his law, is this, love each other. That's verse 12. And then in verse 14, two verses on, he adds, You are my friends if you do what I command. Often we sing that little kid's chorus, I'm special because God has loved me. And I'm so thankful that I'm your special friend. It's a great thing. But if we are his friends, are we obeying what he commands? So let me illustrate it like this. If you're a husband or wife, or maybe you're a student with flatmates, let's say that your house shearer lays down some domestic arrangement. So perhaps they like the towel folded in a particular way. Now this is purely hypothetical, I hasten to add. So perhaps they like the towel to be on the towel rack Nicely folded. And they say, please, would you do that for me? Don't, don't leave it in a mess. Don't leave it in a crumple on the floor. Well, that's a kind of command, isn't it? I mean, there's only two things you can do with that. You either obey it or you disobey it. But if you do it, what is your motivation? I suppose it could be out of fear. But maybe it should be, and I hope it is, out of love. You do what they ask because you care for them. Their requests matter to you. You want to please them. You don't want to break that law. You are my friends if you do what I command. So that really brings it very close to home, doesn't it, for us? With this favoritism thing, if we play favorites, if we choose rule A all the time, we're breaking the command of Christ, our friend. So we've had faith, motive, election, common sense, law, and if we're still not convinced, there's one more, an appeal to judgment. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I think this is the most somber and serious of all. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is going to be a judgment for believers. Some Christians don't. Assume this, but James is not speaking hypothetically when he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Paul said to the Corinthian Christians, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for things done in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul is speaking to Christians there. 
Now, unless we make the mistake, this judgment will not decide our eternal destiny. Heaven, hell are not at stake in this judgment. But reward and rebuke are on the line. And James says, on that day, do not expect benevolence from your heavenly Father. If in your lifetime you have refused mercy, that is, if you have discriminated among people, not shown them the mercy with which God has mercied you, there will be rebuke, there will be loss for us. And therefore, this is a weighty matter. I think James knew that this was very weighty when he wrote it because he ends with this hopeful note just to lift our eyes to God and his mercy. Verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Because, this is wonderful, in eternal terms, if we were judged by our failures, even if we were judged on favoritism alone and how well we've done with that, we would be condemned. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ. Do you know that even the sin of favoritism, if you were judged on that one sin, would condemn you? That's why Christ came, to take the blame for our sin. That's why if you come to faith in him this morning, judgment is served, justice is done on the cross. But mercy triumphs because you are saved. You are rescued from his wrath. And so, believer, do not be discouraged. But take these arguments and let them compel you to be merciful. Let us be a merciful people. One Sunday in 1856, a congregation in Chicago in the United States, were uh, ushered in, as usual, to their rented pews. This is back in the days when you paid for your pew. And a sudden commotion at the door caused them to look around and see what was happening. And these elite churchgoers, who were pretty upper class, what they saw was something they had never witnessed before in their church. A 19-year-old salesman came into the church, followed by a large group of tramps and alcoholics and slum people. And he led this motley group down to the front of the church, to the pews, the four rows that he had personally rented for them with his own cash. You see, they usually couldn't come into church because they couldn't afford the seats. He continued doing that until he set out in a worldwide ministry. The man's name was D.L. Moody, great evangelist. Now, we live in different times from the 18th, 19th century. We live in different times from the first century when James wrote this. But we face the same danger. Let's level the playing field if there is any uneven ground 
And let's commit that in Charlotte Chapel, we will show mercy, but we will not play favorites. Let's pray.